I'm going to start this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I've got a lot of things on my heart this morning, and I really need the Holy Ghost to help me put it together. First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now I'm going to turn real quickly to another scripture, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. You don't have to go there if you don't want to. Isaiah 5, verse 20, it says, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Folks, we live in a time where men are waxing worse and worse, even as Paul foretold by the Holy Ghost in the last days. What I really want to talk to you about this morning is what do you value? What do you value? These scriptures that we started off with in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we could take them apart and identify pretty much everything that it describes in modern day terms, in recent events, current events really. But everything on that list really boils down to one thing, and that is the departure from the truth. Now, Paul wrote to Timothy another letter, and he identified signs of the times and things that would be taking place at the end time as the Holy Ghost directed him. And those things had to do, have to do more with cultural issues. But these are not cultural issues. These are departures from the truth. Folks, we live in a day where two of the states in these United States have decided that killing a baby after birth is okay. We live in a time where people trying to justify those very laws stand up and say that the Bible is pro-abortion. And God gave a very strict warning. Woe unto those that call evil good and good evil. These are important days because they're days of glory. God made very clear that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth before Jesus comes. That the Holy Ghost would be, I hate to use the word poured out because he's already here. But the Holy Ghost would move in such a way that would bring in what God called the precious fruit of the earth. Now the only fruit God cares about is people. Everything else is just ancillary to people. Everything that God put on the earth and everything that uh, resources and so forth. Everything that's here is here for the benefit of man. Not for man to worship. God's not interested in the Green New Deal. 
But you can see in this list, especially the one that jumps out at me, is speaking lies and hypocrisy. We live in a day where people jump on the bandwagon for something that then it's discovered that they have done themselves. Or maybe I should say jump on the bandwagon against something and then they, the information comes out that they've been doing it themselves. This Me Too movement, some of the people that got involved in the Me Too movement and talked about the support that they were willing to give wound up being some that were sexually assaulting or had sexually assaulted women in the past. What does our country value? What do we as a people value? Look with me to um, John chapter 6. Actually, I want to, like I said, I need the Holy Ghost to help me put this together. Let me take a detour here real quickly. The things that are going on in our country, the things that are reported and pushed, the stories that are pushed and the stories that are buried by the media, is all designed to do the work of the enemy. This immigration thing that's become a hot-button issue, the wall that's become a symbol of what the news media is portraying as divisiveness in our country or the divide in our country. Folks, everybody knows walls work. Everybody knows walls work. And so to claim that they don't and that a wall to secure the country from illegal immigration to claim that that's immoral again we're going back to speaking lies and hypocrisy I want to read to you some verses of scripture real quickly and then we'll get over to John chapter 6 where I sent you this is part of John's revelation of the end revelation 21 verse 10 and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain And showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. This is talking about the new Jerusalem, the city of God. Verse 12, and it had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now, folks, if God's got a wall, how can it be immoral? And it seems to me, I hope I'm wrong about this, but I don't think I am. It seems to me that so much of the church gets caught up in the arguments between political parties and skates away from the truth. Skates away from wisdom. So my question about what do we value is not really directed at the country. It's directed at the church. What does the church value? What does the church value? What do you value as as an individual? 
John chapter 6. Let's start reading in uh, verse 24. It says, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took uh, shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. The backstory of this, the previous verses are talking about how Jesus feeds the 5,000, sends the disciples away, goes walking on the water to join them. John doesn't include the part about Peter walking on the wall, uh, walking on the water. But it's all the same situation. So then the people, knowing Jesus had stayed on the, uh, what would it be, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, while he sent his disciples away, then winds up on the east side with them after walking on the water. And the people finally figure out that he is where he is, so they come to him. Verse 25, and when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know why you're here. You're not even here because you saw the miracles. You're here because you want another lunch. That's exactly what it says. You're here to satisfy your flesh. Not for any spiritual purpose or spiritual reason. Labor not for the meat which perishes, he goes on to say, but for that meat which endures under everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. They said therefore unto him, what signs showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the, in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then said Jesus unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth light unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom mother and father we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, 
save or accept he which is of God, he has seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me has everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now let's stop right there. Let's interrupt it for just a second. The Jews had a real problem with this. And you'll see through their reaction that it's pretty extreme. Because cannibalism was greatly, greatly, greatly um, prohibited in any form whatsoever. Drinking blood of animals was prohibited by the law of Moses. So when Jesus starts talking about giving his flesh and his blood for them and them eating thereof, they're thinking cannibalism. They're thinking this is contrary and against everything that the law of Moses uh, identified or pr- provided for them. But when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, uh, he said the end result of that was eternal life. So we know they didn't. But we know that that means what Paul's talked about in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, For if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord, we shall be saved. Verse 10 goes on to say, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Well, salvation is eternal life. So when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we know that that means partaking of his sacrifice. But they're not thinking that way. They could have thought that way. Or they could have just thought, we don't know what he's talking about, but this guy's got the goods. But remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to people that are there for lunch. Not people that have any desire to grow spiritually or even to understand spiritual things. Jesus didn't say this to every group. Jesus didn't operate in this offense to them, to any other group. These are the people that are just following the free meal. Let's pick it back up in verse 55. For my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Now, notice he calls these disciples. So it's not just the religious leaders that are referred to as the Jews. These are people that are following him, continuing on. Remember, Jesus is the one that makes the distinction in John chapter 8 between believing on him and being a disciple. It says, then John chapter 8 tells us about when Jesus told those that believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. 
and you shall know the truth, and truth will make you free. But there are disciples mixed in with this group. So many thereof of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Now, the word hear goes a little bit further than just listen to. It means who can accept it? Well, the answer is very simple. They could have if they'd made the choice to. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured, he said unto them, does this offend you? What, and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back. And walk no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the, unto the twelve, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him. These are the best words Peter ever said. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Did Jesus know what he was telling them was offensive? How could he not? Jesus knew the law of Moses. He knew the prohibitions on cannibalism. He knew the, the, uh, the prohibitions on drinking the, the blood of any animal, even those that were offered in sacrifice unto God. There's no way Jesus would not have known that this would offend the people. And notice how Jesus answered and how he operated when he found out the people were offended. He didn't try to smooth everything over. He knew that the choice to be offended was theirs to make and theirs alone. Jesus doesn't even show any concern when he turns to the 12 and says, what about you? You going away too? Now I want you to realize that where it says many of his disciples turned back and walked no more with him. That means they gave up on him. Every healing that they'd seen, they gave up on. Every miracle that took place, they gave up on. Every mighty work that Jesus did, every teaching that Jesus delivered to them, which would have to pierce your heart. How could Jesus, let me say it this way, how could we be in a place, even spiritually dead like these people were, how could we be in a place and hear Jesus speak the words of God and not be affected spiritually? And Jesus didn't try to talk one person out of leaving him. Not one. It amazed me many years ago when I was still in Bible school. It amazed me many years ago how that Jesus let the rich young ruler walk away. Here was a guy that he loved. Here was a guy that had his heart in the right place. He asked the right question. He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can't ask Jesus a better question than that, can you? Jesus told him, keep the commandments. The rich young ruler said, I've kept all these commandments from my youth. That's probably why he's rich. That's probably why he's exalted to a position of importance or esteem. And then Jesus said, well, there's one thing that you're missing. Sell what you have and give to the poor so you'll have treasure in heaven. 
And the rich young ruler was grieved at that saying because he had great possessions. I think the Bible ought to say the great possessions had him. But he was sad, turned and walked away, and Jesus let the guy walk. It says that he loved it. It talks about Jesus offering him something that we only see offered to the other disciples, the 12. He's offering him a place in his closest company. And Jesus lets him go. Jesus doesn't stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you don't understand. Let me explain. Neither did he hear. Folks, there are times where all of us have opportunities to be offended. And whether we are offended comes down to one simple thing. Psalm 119, verse 165 says, Great peace have they that love your law. They shall not be offended. John came to the end of his life. He was imprisoned by Herod before, just before, maybe a matter of a few days before he was executed, beheaded. And John sent some of his disciples to Jesus. Apparently he got discouraged, so he wanted some confirmation. So he sent disciples to Jesus and asked, on behalf of John the Baptist, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Messiah? Now, folks, that was John's whole message. That was John's whole ministry. There's one coming after me that I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. When he met Jesus, he knew it was Jesus. That's when the Holy Ghost came down from above and landed on Jesus and stayed there. Everybody that was there saw it. Everybody there heard the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You got all three persons of the, of the Trinity. there present in operation. The voice of God, the son of God, and the visible manifestation of the Holy Ghost coming down upon him. Each one separate and unique. I was praying in the spirit just about the first of the year, I guess. And I was, I don't know how to say this. Well, yes, I do. I had a vision. Now, folks, there are different types of visions. There's a, an open vision, there's a trance, and there's a, a closed vision. Now, they're different in importance. They're similar in some respects, but they're different in importance. The highest type of imagination, if you imagine God, think through things of God, if you see yourself, imagine yourself operating in what the Bible says is yours, that's very close to a vision in, in and of itself. Because it's prompted by the word. It's founded on the word. But the second type of vision, or really the first type of vision, is just above the highest form of imagination. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus? His name was Saul then. God hadn't changed it yet. Paul saw a light and then fell to the ground. Now, Jesus talked to him, told him about who he was, told him what to do, and so forth. The, the point of the vision is not the, the reason I'm bringing it up. 
But afterwards, it says when Paul opened his eyes, he was blind. He could see that he could not see. It was revealed to him only then, after he opened his eyes. Well, everything that happened was a closed vision. Everything that happened was not the highest type of vision. It's not where Jesus appeared to him in the flesh or something like that. Now, Paul had some of those. He talked about an angel appeared to him when he was on his way to Rome on the ship. The second type of vision is a trance. You may remember in uh, Acts chapter 10, how it talks about Peter went on the housetop and he said he fell into trance and had a vision. That dis- it dif- differentiates or describes two different things. He fell into a trance. That's where your physical senses are suspended, meaning you're no longer in contact with the physical realm. And he had a vision. When he was in this trance, he had a vision. The third type of vision is an open vision. The book of Revelation is an open vision. John saw these things as if they were open. Now, what the things that he saw, he didn't see uh, the New Jerusalem physically or literally. But when he saw Jesus appear, that really happened. Jesus really did show up. So when I was praying, I had a vision, the lowest type. And somehow or another, the story of Genesis 15 appeared before my face. That was when God took Abraham out and told him to look up into the sky and he saw the stars. And he told him to number them. And of course, that's impossible. And he said, so shall your seed be. Well, the vision I saw was me looking up at the stars just like he had Abraham do. But then all of a sudden the stars changed into prayers. And I knew they were my prayers. And I said to the Lord in this vision, I said, Lord, look at all the prayers we've got. Look at all the answers we have as a harvest. And then it ended. Then a couple of weeks later, again, I'm praying in the spirit, spending some time speaking in other tongues. And the Lord witnessed a word to my heart. It wasn't a voice, but it was a witness of a word in my spirit. And the word was surge. And then I had another vision. Now, the vision I had was a, uh, I remember watching the videotape of one of these tsunamis over in the Philippines or Thailand or I don't even know where it was. But just as I saw physically that, uh, that video many months before, I don't even remember where it was or when it took place, maybe a couple of years before. But the Lord showed me that or brought it to my remembrance, however it worked. I I can't explain this part. But I saw the sea drawing way, 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 way back. And then the water came in and surged. And the camera angle I was looking at from the video that was replaying in my mind was from up of the one, uh, one of the upper levels of a seaside hotel. So it showed a, a wide range, big picture view of the sea drawing back. It went way, 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 way back. And then it came in and it just demolished pretty much everything that was in his past or carried it off. 
And then I heard these words. I heard draw back, surge. Now when that was over, I began to give some thought to the things that were going on in our church at the time. And folks, over the last couple of months, we've had more things happen, not good things, but we've had more things happen all in as, as a group or bundled up together than ever before in the history of our church. And every one of them is a result of somebody going stupid. It wasn't the work of the devil. It wasn't some, some great tragedy or calamity. It's people allowing themselves to be offended. On one hand, that was one part of the things that, that had happened. The other part of the things that had happened is people that were in places of influence in our church. People that were operating in helps ministry in our church. Allowing themselves by the influence of the devil to provide a negative influence on others that were under them. In some cases, young people. Now, folks, remember the qualifications in Acts chapter 6. You remember in Acts chapter 6 where it talks about how in the daily administration of the church life, the church activity, that some of the people, the, the Greeks, were being left out. There was, a, there was still the, the prejudice of the Jews versus the Gentiles, even though they're all saved, even though they're all part of the family of God. There was a, a distinction that was being made. The Jewish, pe Jewish people were being treated a lot better than the Gentiles were. So they brought it to the apostles, and Peter spoke the answer, gave them the solution. He says, it's not right for us to leave the ministry of the word and prayer to wait on tables. But he said this, he said, choose out seven men among you. Do you remember the qualifications for those people? of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom. Now, folks, that's the, the, the qualifications for the people that are waiting on tables. That should be the lowest form of helps or service to anybody in the church. And the qualifications are honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and full of wisdom. Well, if that should be the qualifications then should the qualifications be any less now and Paul's pretty clear on the subject I hate to get off track here but I'm going to have to in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 Paul talked about the things talked about a principle of things that were happening in his day in the churches as an example from the Holy Ghost to us Verse 1, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies or builds up. And if any man think that he knows anything, he doesn't yet know anything as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. In other words, he's saying idols are, are foolish. They're irrelevant. People sometimes say, well, a loved one gave me a statue of Buddha. Should I keep it in the house or will that open the door to evil spirits? Folks, an idol is nothing. It doesn't matter. Brother Hagin used to have one of these uh, 
booze that was about, sat about 12 inches high and was jade. It was really, really costly. And somebody bought it to him that went over to Thailand or somewhere as a joke. Brother Hagen would laugh and rub its stomach. Because idols are nothing. Now, he didn't advertise that he had it. Because that would certainly disturb some people. But he knew it didn't mean anything. And we kept it secret till after he died, so. <clears throat> Verse 5. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. Not everybody's strong enough to live up to what Paul says. Hopefully everybody will get there, but that doesn't mean everybody's there already. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. In other words, for some people it's really important. It's a really big deal. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better. Neither if we eat not are we the better or the worse. He says it doesn't matter to us with God. God doesn't get mad at you for eating idol offered meat. He doesn't give you a gold star if you don't. Well, then what is the point? If the point's not with our relationship or our fellowship with God, what is the point? The point is what the effect is on the other people. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man sees thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge... Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, let I make my brother to offend. Now, folks, plug everything in that chapter. Every time where the word meat is talked about, plug the word drinking or alcohol. And we've got a present day situation. I'll do it to verse 13. Wherefore, if drinking or alcohol make my brother to offend, I will drink no alcohol while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. <clears throat> now, folks, that's the only example, or maybe we should say the best example, of leadership in the church. And if the least of the people that are operating in the church men or women of good report, full of the Holy Ghost and full of wisdom, are going to abide by the word. They're going to have to recognize the wisdom of that verse or that principle. If they're going to help around here, that's what they need to do. Does that make drinking alcohol wrong? Paul said it didn't. He said the issue is offending other people. Well, that's some of the things that's been going on around here for the last couple of months. That's inclusive <clears throat> of things that we've had going on. That's what I believe the drawing back was that I saw in the vision.
Now, folks, before any great victory, there's a great test. And maybe we should say it this way. Every great victory comes from a great battle. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city. This was his headquarters city, the, the city that he based out of when he was running guerrilla operations against the enemies of Israel before he became king. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. The end of the story is that David winds up going after him, brings back everybody, brings back a great spoil, not just the things that had been taken from the city of Ziklag, but the things that had been taken by the Amalekites from other cities So it was a a big, 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 big victory. And folks, but the thing that it required for great victories, for great battles, some people give up in the battle. It's less than a week later from this story in 1 Samuel chapter 30 that David is made king of all of Israel. It's been about 13 years, maybe 12 years, 12 to 13 years perhaps since Samuel first came to his house and anointed him to be king. And remember, Samuel had to do it in secret because Saul was the king, the rebellious king against God. And Saul would have had him killed if he found out. So David, after having been told by the prophet that he would be the king of Israel, after his great battle against Goliath and the defeat of Goliath, after Saul becomes jealous of him and tries to kill him, now 13 years later, and you know as well as I do, there were a lot of places during those 13 years David could have sped up the process. There were three different times where he had Saul in his sights, so to speak, and could have killed him, but didn't. And you know as well as I do that there had to be a bunch of times when David questioned whether or not Samuel, what Samuel told him was true or not. There had to have been a lot of times where he asked the question, is this ever going to turn out the way that the prophet said? We'll always be presented with a lot of opportunities to quit. We'll always, be com- we'll always be confronted with or given opportunities to compromise.
And for me, I don't know if everybody thinks like I do on this or not. But for me, compromising and or quitting comes down to one thing. And that is what do I value? Is what I value, is what the Lord told me, strong enough or sufficient enough for me to hold my ground even under the most extreme circumstances? When I was working for Brother Hagen, there was a point in time where well, there was a point in time where somebody decided that I should be gotten rid of. I think it was jealousy that, that spurred it on, but whatever. It's not mine to judge, I don't guess. But there was a person in a position had been put in a position to have interaction with the crusade department, which I was part of. And there were some lies that were told about me and what I said and why I said it and so forth. And the lies were spread strategically. The guy was smart. He didn't just tell one person. He told several people that had access to Brother Hagen from several different angles. So it got to the point where Brother Hagen was hearing it. He really only heard the same story several times, but he thought he was hearing different stories that confirmed what he had first heard. And so Brother Hagen believed the lie. No two ways about it. Just believed the lie. And so for A month, six weeks, maybe eight weeks. I was being pushed to make a decision to leave and to quit. And I recognized that it would be easier for everybody if I did quit. But I knew I wasn't finished there. I knew I wasn't through with what Brother Hagen or what God had given me to do, not the least of which involved the, the attachment and the connection that he made with, for me with Brother Hagen. Folks, the things that happened when I went to school, you can't make happen. They were supernatural. They were things that God moved certain pieces into place for the purpose of giving me a relationship with Brother Hagen. And I have to tell you, it's not just the teaching of Brother Hagen that, that has equipped me for whatever you think that's worth. Thank God for his teachings. I've got everything that's ever been recorded. But it was a relationship I had with him that really made it work. Because I saw that Brother Hagin lived what he preached. I saw him hold his tongue when I wanted to kill people that spoke against him. I saw Brother Hagin was a genuine man of God. His character was just as strong as his ministry. That may be rarer than we'd like to think. So I came to a place where I realized what was going on. And I said, I went to the Lord about it, and I said, Lord, 
I know my time's not up. I really had a witness that I had two more years, maybe two and a half years left there. But I told him, I said, I don't want to finish out or spend another two, two and a half years the way that it's been for the last couple of months. Now, I know, Lord, the principle is a man of faith takes what's left. When Abraham and Lot parted ways, he gave Lot his choice. Because it didn't matter to Abraham where he went. Didn't matter if he had the hillsides or the valleys. Didn't make any difference because God was with him and God would make good of whatever he had. So a man of faith doesn't have to promote himself or push to have what he wants to have. God with him will make it good no matter what it is. So I told that to the Lord. I said, I know a man of faith takes what's left. And I'm willing to take what's left here. I'm willing to leave and go on my own. But Lord, this is the one thing that I'm asking for. Make this thing right between me and Brother Hagin. Well, we left. Brother Hagin was gracious in the way that we left. He helped us a little bit. He put our name in uh, our photo in the Word of Faith magazine that was circulated to about, well, a lot of people, I don't know. A lot of people had the chance to see it. Ministers had the chance to see it if they wanted to and so forth. So Brother Hagin did do well by us. But it was only after that we had, well, maybe it wasn't after. It was right about the time where we decided to go that Brother Hagin found out the truth. The way things had progressed and the way that it had escalated, I still had to go. Or I chose to go. It really was my choice. But there was one thing in this that I wasn't willing to give up. Now, I know I had an opportunity and I knew the devil was trying to influence me to give up on Brother Hagin. To say, well, maybe he's not the good guy I think he is. He never came to me to ask me about the things that he heard. He didn't handle things that way. And Brother Hagin, if anybody had a dysfunctional family, Brother Hagin's family was the poster boy for it. I'm not talking about his kids. I'm talking about his mother and father and relatives and that kind of stuff. So Brother Hagin just didn't do conflict. He just didn't. And I suppose that was the way he would have looked at it if he'd come to me to find out or ask me about what he'd heard. But my one requirement was, and I told the Lord, I know you'll make it work for whatever you want me to get to. If I'm going the wrong way, you'll have to work it out to get me around to what I need to get over these next couple of years. And in the process of time, really a short period of time, Brother Hagin became aware of everything that was going on with it. He saw it for what it really was. And he reached out and reestablished the relationship with me. He never really had anything about Beth. So he kept treating her right, at least. But God turned that thing back around. It wasn't but a year or two later. Well, no, that's not right. It would have been about four or five years later. I came to church one Sunday morning and Brother Hagin was at my, at my house in my den on his vacation watching TV and I couldn't even tell the people that Brother Hagin was here. He wouldn't preach for me. He said, no, you're the pastor. You need to preach for, to your people. 
Well, it sure would have been good for me to say, guess who's at my house? But I kept his secrets. The reason I say that, folks, is because there have been people that have told me things that God told them about being part of our church, about, uh, about sitting under the teaching of our church and so forth. I'm thinking of one situation where a guy told me that God said to him, specifically said to him, that he was to come to this church and learn everything that there was to learn and that this would be a substitute or would really be his Bible school training. Well, it wasn't but a couple of years later that he got offended at something and left. And I've always wondered about that. It was not a good move for his family. His family, there were a lot of terrible things that happened in his family shortly thereafter. And I'm not saying that's because he left or wasn't around me. I, I, I'm not saying that at all. But I wonder what people do with those things. See, if God told me that something was important to my spiritual growth and development and relationship with him, I'm not going to turn away from that for anything. But he got offended. And it altered the course of his life. He said that God had called him to the ministry, but it created a roadblock for him to get there. To get there. Now, folks, I don't have to tell you that I'm not perfect. I prove that every service. And there may be mistakes that I make along the way. I'm sure there are. But I can tell you this without any question whatsoever. I haven't made a mistake from my heart in over 25 years. I've made a lot of them from my flesh. I've got flesh just like you do. And I've reacted in the flesh on a number of times, number of occasions. Probably more than I'd like to admit if I counted them up. So I won't count. But folks, when you commit yourself to the Lord, when you live according to his word, mistakes of the heart are a thing of the past. And that's what I value. And because of that value that I place on the word of God, there are things that I will never even really be tempted to do. There are things that I'll never be offended by. Because I love the law of God. I love the word of God. Great peace have they that love thy law. And nothing shall offend them. So the point is this for me. I sure do regret people that have drawn back. But there's a surge coming. There's a surge coming. What's that going to do for the people that have drawn back? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know if drawing back means they miss out on the benefits and the blessings of the surge. Or it means that that helps them see what's really going on and to make adjustments. I don't know. I'm reminded of a situation that Brother Hagin told, a story he told about uh, preaching for a, a guy, a certain town, really a pretty small town. And during the 
course of his ministry, the time that he was there, it may have even been the last day of the crusade that he was having or the event where he was ministering in this church. But he said this, the spirit of the prophet came on him and he said this, he said, the Lord shows me that there are three people that have caused this pastor a lot of heartache. He said, one will repent, one will move away and one will die. And after the service, there was this lady that came running up the aisle to this pastor and said, I'm the one that's repenting. And within a couple of months, the other one died and one moved away. You know why I'm telling you that, don't you? <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. I don't know what the surge is going to mean. But I sure do like remembering that picture of where the stars turn to the prayers that we've got out there. If God answers every prayer that we prayed for his blessing, for the healing power of God to flow through this church, for salvation to rise as the tide, for the glory of God to be seen, if God answers every one of those prayers, we have got some fantastic things on our horizon. Now here's my question, my follow-up question, my last question. How could he not answer them? They're prayed according to his word. They're prayed in faith. How can he not answer them? Smith Wigglesworth used to say, God, you don't think you're not going to keep your word tonight, do you? And he honored his word. And signs and wonders and miracles were took, took place in his ministry. We've got some great things on the horizon, folks. If you're not drawing back, don't. If you're offended or tempted to be offended by something that we do or don't do or whatever, just hold steady. Don't let the things that God spoke to your heart get lost through offenses. That's the devil's number one way that he has opportunity to divide the people of God. If he can't divide us, he can't stop us. Hold steady and see the surge of the Lord. Amen. Well, gentlemen, let's wait upon the people and serve communion. What an appropriate time to have communion. To rededicate ourselves. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of our Savior. Because that's what these things represent. Come ahead, gentlemen.
Paul writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, we recognize that this bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the body that took stripes upon itself, that by his stripes we are healed. Lord Jesus, we receive you as our healer as well as our Savior. And we thank you for the divine health that you restore unto us because of the great act of mercy that you showed unto us by taking our punishment. Let's receive the red. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. We have the most high value, place the most high value on the blood of Jesus. The blood that washed us and the eternal life that's given to us as a result. We commit ourselves anew and afresh to you, Lord. We'll not draw back. We'll not turn away. But we shall be faithful to all that you've given us to do. Let's receive the cup. Hallelujah. Let's all stand, please. Let's lift our hands and thank him one more time. We love you, Lord. We thank you for choosing us to live in these last days, perilous days for sure. Certainly days where men are waxing worse and worse. But we'll be strong. We'll live our lives based upon your word. We'll let the Holy Ghost be our guide. And we will witness the glory of the Lord. Thank you, Father, for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.